Welcome to the Bridging History Podcast, brought to you by the Minnesota Council for History Education. I am Matt Moore, a high school history teacher from Mankato, Minnesota. And I'm Eric Beckman, a high school history teacher from St. Paul, Minnesota. And today, Eric and I are going to solve all of the critical race theory problems that are going to confront history teachers uh, for the upcoming school year. So we have all of the answers to all of the questions. Um, And here we go, right, Eric? That's right. In 30 minutes, any anxieties you have on this topic will be completely allayed. Do not worry. <laughs> in, in all seriousness, what Eric and I thought we would do is we kind of have organized like four big questions that we think, you know, a good history teacher should be thinking about. That these are, these are going to have to be questions that I think every history teacher is going to have to wrestle with. And the more prepared you are to have thought about your own answer to these questions, I think that can relieve a lot of stress and anxiety going into the school year. Um, if you put some thought and work into these questions ahead of time, that might save you time in the middle of the year while you're busy doing other things. Um, so if you have any concern at all about critical race theory and, and um, parents and community members maybe using that moral panic to uh, target you this school year, here's what we got for you. So. Um, so, Eric, I'm going to kick things off with, I think, the first question that I think uh, teachers need to consider um, in this upcoming school year is that are they going to engage uh, a parent, a member of the community, another staff member, a colleague? Are they going to engage in arguments, definitional arguments about critical race theory? So what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I think the short answer there is no that the word the phrase has been operationalized politically by people who attribute all kinds of meanings to it and then the meanings um to that term by the people who created it you know quickly get pretty complex because legal scholars or the field this comes from legal studies you know it's pretty um abstract intellectual stuff so the first thing that i would probably do is not try to get into some sort of philosophical discussion with people about what that might mean. Now, you should definitely, of course, depending on the person, engage them in what's in their question. If it's a parent, you know, they have a right to ask about what's happening, what's happening in my class, so you want to talk about that. I also think here it's important to think about how um, even though there's clearly people who are using this term who are not using it in good faith. Like the person most responsible for popularizing the term by using it on the Tucker Carlson show that the ex-president watched and then called him the next day. You know, that guy, you know, has clearly said that he wants it to become this vague umbrella term. But that does not mean that every individual with a question about this is coming from that place. So I think assuming good intentions is a good way to start things. Up a parent might ask me about that. They might just be curious. They might just be like, what do you think about this? And so I would probably start by just saying, well, that's that's a graduate school or legal studies concept that's not really something that we would teach. And then use that as a way to kind of pivot to what's happening in class. And then let the conversation continue. Some of those things might come up. So those are my initial thoughts. What are What are you thinking? Yeah, I think you are going to wade into a pretty uh, mucky swamp if you if you run it, run into a scenario where a, a parent asks you, "Are you teaching critical race theory?" and you say no, 
and you say no, and here's why I'm saying no, it doesn't match this definition. I think what's going to happen in that, um, in a, a parent might say, well, what about this definition? Like there are multiple definitions out there uh, about what critical race theory is, and I think people are going to find the definition that aligns with what they want it to be. So mm -hmm. I, I think that you're going to, if you go down that road, you're going to, you're going to get stuck in a trap of arguing about, you know, what it is and what it isn't. And I'm not sure if you're going to reach a resolution on that issue. So I think what you could do is you could ask, what they, how are they defining it? Um, and try to get it back. But I think then what you want to pivot to is a conversation about, well, let me tell you, let me tell you what I am trying to do with my class. Like, um, so, so they're asking you a question about critical race theory, and I think what they're, you know, if we're operating from good intentions, I think what they're really wanting to know is just more about conviction in the class. What do you, you know, what do you see as like your end goal with this U.S. history class or this world history class? Um, you know, what are you trying to do uh, with the group of students that you have in your building? And so that might be a good time. Um, I think we need to share that information. So I guess that, that's where I, I'm thinking with that first question is I'm going to, if I get asked that question, I'm going to try to answer it with, you know, I'm not sure what your definition of critical race theory is. Uh, I know there's a lot of definitions out there, but let me share with you what I am doing. Like, here's what I am doing in my class. Mm -hmm. um, yep. And I think that, that leads into, I think, the second big question then that a history teacher should be thinking about prior to the start of the school year is, you know, what is your approach? What Do you have an overarching philosophical approach to your history class? Do you have an overarching mission um, to your class that you can summarize in, in a paragraph? Is it something that you can put in your syllabus? Is it something you can put in a letter that gets sent to parents at the start of the school year? Um, so, Eric, what are your... How, how do you wrap your head around, like, that big question? Do you have a, a big mission for your world history class, a philosophical approach? Yeah, I do. Um, but I think – and I think it's a good idea to be kind of upfront about that. And I usually include something in, like, a general email that I send out, like a class email to all parents and students, you know, during the first week of school. You know, here's what I'm trying to do in the class. Um, and And I think – that continues to be a good idea. And I also think for newer teachers, kind of back to our our first episode where we were talking about new teachers or the episode where we talked about new teachers too, like just thinking about answers to these questions in general before they're asked is a good idea. And I also think um, I was on a, uh, at an online conference with the National Council for History Education and one of the speakers at that, um, Gloria Ladson Billings, who's a professor at um, UW Madison, but she said, you know, you could, in the face of controversies like this, you can bury your head in your sand, or you could raise your banner and argue. But really, maybe what she recommended was that this would be a moment for engagement. You'd be like, wow, people don't usually ask about what I think about history. So, I think yeah. it's important for parents and students in my class to know that I see world history or history as a process that we, you know, students should do history instead of just learning history. And I think some of the national controversy, such as it is, it's kind of about, you know, there's different definitions of what history even is, that history isn't just a collection of facts of things that happened in the past, but that history is a process of, you know, it's a way of thinking of 
drawing conclusions from evidence that we critically interpret evidence in order to create narratives. And I also think in one of the articles I've um, read on this, an education historian named John Zimmer um, said, you know, we should have the courage to let kids in on the little secret that we don't all agree on what the correct historical narrative is. So that you're creating space, not for kids just to offer their opinion because, you know, opinions aren't, we all have opinions, but that there is space for students to interpret evidence or make or ask questions of the past based on, you know, where they are, and that there isn't one narrative that we're trying to um, impose upon students, that maybe that's the fear. People who are asking this question in good faith might have a fear that I'm trying to impose some particular narrative on students, when really I, my, I mostly want kids to know that there are multiple narratives that are possible and that we should consider those carefully. And I think that's a little easier in a world history class where there isn't like where the, the culture war, if you will, over what the narrative should be isn't as well established. So what do you think that would look like in, in your U.S. history classes? Yeah, I think one of the activities I have started doing at the start of the school year is I've been giving kids, of, um, I've just been collecting quotes from historians over the over my career about, you know, if they if they have a really great, great quote about what history is, uh, I will add it to this document. And then um, one of the things I've done is giving kids these quotes and ask them to like categorize the quotes to try to sort them. Like, do you see any similarities between any of these quotes? Um, and generally, what you know, one of the big ideas I've had in the past is for them to realize when most people are asked like, what's the point of history? They're you know, so we don't repeat the mistakes of the past or. Uh, um, History repeats itself. Like that's often the thing you'll you'll have a, a layperson tell you. But uh, oh, these yeah. quotes often a get a little bit. will say that. Yeah, these quotes will will do a deeper dive than that. So um, so I've got a collection of those. But I think in this upcoming year, I think what I'm going to have to emphasize a little bit more, and I do have a couple quotes that do this, is to try to explain the difference uh, between heritage and history. Um, and I think there is there's a quote I'm going to add this upcoming year. It comes from uh, Mary Wingard, and she I was reading her book North Country this last year. It's about the Dakota War, and uh, she had a really good a really good quote in there about um, uh, about the difference between heritage and history. I'm just going to it's only a, a couple sentences, so I'm just going to read it real quick, uh, and I am going to add this to my slides. But it says heritage is crafted to affirm what we wish to be true about ourselves, whereas history strives, albeit imperfectly, to discover the truth about the past. History, of course, is far more complex and problematic than heritage. History must come to terms with injustice and tragedy, as well as achievement, asking hard questions that heritage steeped in nostalgia tends to obscure. So I really like that. I really think it hits uh, the difference clearly in just a couple sentences, the difference between heritage and history. Another quote that a really short quote that I've always liked, Sam Weinberg has a quote that says, history is an argument about the past. And so that gets to that idea that, you know, historians are always um, examining the past, looking at primary sources. There's going to be multiple takes on, on these primary sources. Um, but I do, I do add a wrinkle into that. With that sign one word quote, I, I do kind of remind students, history is an argument about the past, but there are times where the argument is, is settled. Like, it's pretty settled that 
slavery caused the Civil War. Like, that's not really up for debate anymore. That's not really, you know, the Confederates who seceded, they clearly said why they were seceding in their secession documents. So we don't really argue about that much anymore. But there are, there are other areas where um, history is an argument about the past. So I think for a Sometimes teacher, I get an argument. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I've lost arguments. Like, oh no, you're right. <laughs> yeah, you yeah. still have to prove something. There's a difference between an argument and an opinion. And so one of the things that I think is sort of a subset of this in terms of like the day to day is working through with kids that, that there's something beyond fact or opinion. You know, that's yeah. in some ways a, a false dilemma or, or just to tell them like developmentally that was appropriate when you were in grade school, but you know, I teach 11th grade, so now that you're older, we can we can look at things a little yeah. more subtly. So interpretation is based on facts, and some interpretations could be incorrect. And here's a quote I always like to share with students. Opinions are like belly buttons. Everybody has one, but some hold more water than others, and we want our opinions <laughs> to hold water. And so some historians' interpretations of past events hold more water than Another another historian's interpretation of a event, right? So we can it's not like everything in history is up for debate. There are some you know, some debates where historians have, have pretty much reached consensus and uh you know, it's been acknowledged that that somebody has clearly laid out the best evidence for for their interpretation. So that with all that being said, I guess those are thoughts Eric and I have about, you know, um putting together putting you know, you want to put together your own thoughts about what you think the mission of your class is or what you think history is. Uh, so that if you are asked that, you, you can share that um, at the start of the school year. A third question that I think um, teachers need to think about prior to the start of the school year is what resources are you going to use if, if it worst comes to worst, you have to defend your practices or you have to defend a lesson plan. Um, what resources do you have to back you up? So this is where Eric and I can maybe share a few ideas that we have. So, Eric, what do you think? Uh, would you recommend teachers turn to for if they make if an accusation is made against a specific teacher, you taught an inappropriate lesson? What can they turn to? Right. Well, I would think say first of all, like the general advice would be, you know, be sure you get, you know, building and district leadership, depending on how big your situation is and how big your, you know, district school is, um, you know, get other people in on this situation, you know, let them know what's happening. I would say in, in conversation, and, and if you, if, if those people then ask you, like, well, well, why are you doing this? I think you can look at things that the district or school itself has put out. I know that the district that I teach in, I teach in the Anoka Hennepin district here in Minnesota, you know, has a mission statement in general, and it has, um, uh, it has a statement on like diversity and inclusion. Um, I'm not sure if it's exactly titled that, but there's something, you know, student services, you know, rights for all students. And so there's that. Because sometimes what's happening is, is people might be wondering why you're including something in the curriculum. And so then one of the things is generally going to be the case is that I want all students to see themselves in the curriculum. And so that's part of the, the issue here is that, you know, some students come from communities or family backgrounds um, that they should see and not just, you know, when they're being, when that group is being oppressed, they should see those groups in a variety of situations. And so that's one of the reasons for including things. So you can look there. I think you could also 
take a look at the state standards. And of course, anything that we do, theoretically, we should be able to tie to the state standards anyway. And Minnesota is a local control state, so your district curriculum should fit in with the state standards. And, and so you should be able to, somewhere somebody has probably mapped that, like this piece of the curriculum for world history connects with this state standard. And so you can kind of find, well, here's, here's where it is and here's how, how it meets that. And again, if you're following a framework of history is an area of inquiry where you're not trying to, you know, force an overall narrative on all of your students where students are interpreting events. Um, and that there are settled arguments and there are other areas where there's, there's room for us to, to think about what's happening more. And I think you're in good shape there. Um, so would you, what would, what might you add to that or what nuance might you put on yeah. the general answer? Yeah, I think there, I think there's like three big things to fall back on. So you already mentioned two of the three. So one would be your, your district mission statement or district core values. Um, figure out, figure out what those are. Um, the second thing would be state standards or any, any standards. So if you're an AP teacher, your AP curriculum framework, uh, international baccalaureate might have a curriculum framework. You're likely a member of the National Council for Social Studies. They have a C3 framework. Um, using anything in there, so if a, if a parent is wondering why are you teaching um, the slavery cause of civil war, well, here's my state standard that, that says that. Um, you also, uh, but the third, so the third thing then I would add, and I'm going to link to this in the show notes, is a joint statement that was recently published. The American Historical Association was the original author of it, but it's been signed onto by every major social studies and history professional association under the sun. So the Organization for the American Historians co-signed it. The National Council for the Social Studies co-signed it. It's a joint statement responding to the moral panic of critical race theory, and it tries to emphasize, like, what a good history class should be doing. Um, and there's, you know, so it's a really short joint statement, but it could be used by you to say, listen, I'm doing what is, is a, it's a consensus belief in my profession. This is what my profession, I'm a history teacher, um, this is what a good history teacher should be doing, according to the all of the major professional organizations I'm a part of. Uh, so I think you have that to fall back on too. I just thought of one one other little wrinkle to all this. Um, you might want to look into what your local school district's controversial topics policy is. Um, in doing some research of my own for my own school district, uh, I, I found ours to be a little. Uh, I'm a little worried about it. It's got some really vague language in it. Uh, it, it basically does not define what controversial is, and then it allows uh, for parents to opt their child out of any any lesson that they deem to be controversial. Um, I have found that there are districts out there that have much better policies that I think, you know, would easily defend a teacher um, who's getting attacked by a parent or a member of the community. So. Um, I can link to those in the uh, in the show notes too. The one that I like the best is from Lakeville. Uh, they've been updating their controversial they updated their their controversial topics policy throughout last school year, and I think settled on it at the end of last school year. But um, they have a very I think thorough uh, controversial topics policy. So that would be that would be the the last 
thing that I would I would say a person should look into. So with that, Eric, what do you think uh, next steps uh, or any final thoughts, I guess, um, that, that a history teacher should be taking or thinking about prior to the start of the school year? Yeah, I think, well, the, the, the first thing I, I would say um, kind of dovetails in with your kind of second to last point there on the American Historical Association statement, which was also signed by the World History Association. So that's that course and the Organization of American Historians focuses on U.S. history, right? So you have the two main like professional associations for historians there and the AHA that includes historians who study everything. Um, But so at that associational level, I would encourage people to, to join, um, associations if you're not in the, your state council for social studies education or the national council for history education which will get you membership into your um, state association i think those are ways to coordinate with other people and also feel more connected to other people and to practice and develop ideas about what what history is how can we use moments like this um, as opportunities for civic engagement because as um, historians of have commented, uh, historians of education have commented on this current public issue, is it's nothing new. You can go back to, you know, people burning textbooks in the 1930s because they supposedly had subversive ideas and then anti-communism gone run amok in the 50s and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. There's no point, as Sam Weinberg has said, there's no point in our past where people thought that the current knowledge of teachers and young people about history itself was adequate. So it's, you know, it's it's just, it's, you know, kind of, it's a situation that might come for young teachers. It might come up again in a different place in your career. So associational life. Then at the, at the micro level, you know, your department, your building, um, you know, just to have kind of talked about that with teachers and, you know, these that, um, you know, wisdom of the group kind of a thing where, you know, collaboration. And I know we collaborate a lot more in education now than when I started out with, you know, collaborative teams when I started out in 1990. Um, a little more just, you know, a young, young man in a room deal. Um, and that's good. So just share, like, don't, don't, don't worry about it, you know, share and talk to people. So that would be my overall advice. Yeah, I, I, it's very similar to you. I would say be proactive, check in with your department and, uh, and your administrators, you know, before the start of the school year. Try to think about um, developing planned responses to what hypothetical questions that you are thinking might happen over the course of the year. Um, and it might not be a bad idea. You know, we're all busy, but administrators are definitely going to be busy before the school year. It might not be a bad idea for you to put together just a short paragraph on what you hope the administration's response would be. Um, that way they have some idea for, you know, what you're thinking the, uh, the best path forward would be. Because you don't want a situation where they're answering the parent's question one way and it doesn't, it does not line up with what you're doing in your classroom. So be proactive, check in with your department, check in with administrators. And hopefully Eric and I have solved all of your critical race theory problems for this upcoming school year. Yeah, so you can just check that off your list. You know, worry about this national issue coming to my classroom. Just check. Already done. Yep. Don't have to worry about that. Now you can focus on English Premier League um, 
you know, that's kicking off, so you can devote yeah, all your attention to that, fantasy football, you know, the things that yeah, are I've got some decisions to make about my fourth midfielder for my English Premier League fantasy team. <laughs> um, there you go. That I only have, I have like 24 hours. So, okay. All right. Um, one thing we we have forgotten to do, is, you know, because Eric and I are, are such professionals at this podcasting thing, that we've forgotten to tell people how they can get in touch with us. Um, so, okay. Eric, where can people find you online? Well, I do a lot of um, tweeting and following people through Twitter for professional life, so that's um, at E.R. Beckman. And I also have thoughts that I occasionally update, and there's probably more lesson plans there now of relevance at um, ebeckman.org. That's a website. And yeah, and, and you can find me on Twitter. I, I don't interact much, but I do follow um, at Moore's Classroom, M-O-O-R-E-S Classroom. Um, I'm on Twitter there. And you could you could always post us, uh, drop us a message on the Minshew website. That's M-N-C-H-E dot WordPress dot com. There is uh, there is a contact us page on that website. So if you have um, other types of ideas for how teachers could navigate the critical race theory uh, crisis, you can share those with us, uh, and we can we can relay relay those ideas on an upcoming episode. So with that, we'll we'll wrap things up here and uh thanks for joining us be sure to hit subscribe so you can catch all of our upcoming episodes great thank you so much for listening and we'll catch you next time